There's that scene towards the end where the, where the heroic army seems as though it is facing inevitable defeat. And at the last moment, one leader steps forward to rally armies to surge forward in one last attempt to attain victory. And usually they win in the good ones, at least the enjoyable movies. We think of Benjamin Martin and the Patriot who runs forward to the top of the hill with flag in hand to marshal the troops to stop retreating and charge back into battle. We think of Aragorn and the return of the king showing up with renewed troops to fight the invasion in Mordor. And we should think of Micah announcing the messianic king and his arrival to ensure victory for the remnant of God's people. We're working through Micah's book, his series of prophecies. He ministered in Judah during the events we know are recorded in 2 Kings 15 to 20. And he proclaimed God's word against Israel when they were entrenched in rebellion against their God. In Micah 1 to 3, we've seen that that book was called the book of doom because there Micah increasingly narrowed his focus in announcing destruction, starting with the whole land and ending specifically with announcing the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And then in Micah 4 and 5, this section called the book of visions, the prophet has switched focus from the proclamation of doom to the announcement of deliverance. Despite the inevitable destruction for because of their violations of the covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai, God would act again to deliver them from exile. So for Judah specifically, Babylon would take them captive But we see here there would be a future king, a deliverer, who would collect God's people and even make it so that the nations flooded to worship the true God. And in this instance, though, Micah 5 links really closely with Micah 4. So These two chapters are really one discourse, but at least I am not skilled enough to preach all of this in one go. There may be others more capable than I, but we turn now to Micah 5, and perhaps though you remember from last Sunday night in chapter 4 that it had the structure of looking at how God's future promises instill present hope. And so God's promises of future blessings, remember, in the latter days had two applications of how these latter-day promises were meant to instill that present-day hope. And those two applications from beginning in verses 9 and 11 of chapter 4 begin with that little word, now, if you remember. So, Micah 5, which also begins now, is actually the the entire chapter is the third application of why God's future promises should instill present hope. As we see in verse 1, Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel 
on the cheek. And so the promise, again, if we keep this in mind, what's going on here? The promise should inspire Jerusalem to do battle with their enemies, despite knowing that the city would be taken captive. The point The point of that is that the certainty of future hope should be able to lift us above the mire of present defeat. Carry our heads above even that so that we can press forward. And the rest of Micah 5 outlines the foundations again of that future hope. And so the main point is that God will give His people surprising victory in Christ. God will give His people surprising victory in Christ. And we'll think about this in three points. The Messiah, the mission, and the method. So first, let's think about the Messiah. So so this point, what we're going to do first is, I want to give you an outline. I think it's really helpful in these books of prophecy, most of the time, if we can get a handle on the outline of a section, we can understand it better. So I want to outline for you the structure of this passage, and then I want to think about the doctrinal heart of this chapter, which is the the promised Messiah will bring significant and surprising rescue and victory to his people. So verses 1 to 6 describe that coming Messiah including his origins and earthly mission. And then verses 7 to 15 describe the people whom the Messiah creates and delivers and how God will give them victory. So the broad scope of this passage moves from the promised Messiah to the people whom he creates and delivers. That's how this moves. Now, let's dive into this. So, if we can read verses 2 to 6, which describe this Messiah. Well, okay, let's read verses 2 to 3. Let's start there, actually, uh, which describe this Messiah. So, verses 2 and 3 explain his origins. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me... One who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So, so this Messiah will be the Messiah means anointed one, right? We we remember that. So God's chosen one to be the king of his people. And this Messiah will be king, a ruler in Israel, it tells us. These verses describe three aspects of his origins. And that's what I want us to think about. So first, we can see his earthly origins. He comes from a city called Bethlehem, Ephrathah, or just Bethlehem. This city, here's the thing, that's actually important. It's not just a prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. It is that, but it's more. This city where the Messianic king originates is 
small and insignificant. Despite this city's apparent weakness, however, David, Israel's greatest king, was born there. So the link between this coming king and David's city indicates that this coming king restores the greatness and the righteousness to Israel as it had experienced under King David. The point is that this king will be as great a king in the order of David. That's what's going on. That's why it's important that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so that's his earthly origins. He will be born in this specific city. And next we see the Messiah's divine origins. And this is the, this is the really cool stuff, I think. So there's a, there's a tension here that we have to see between the fact that Micah 5 is a prophecy about the future ruler, right? This is, this is something, someone who will come. It's a prophecy about the future ruler. And, and that is intention with how this future ruler comes forth from of old, from ancient days. How, how can a king whose birth was future have origins in times of ancient past? I mean, you, most of you probably know where this is going, right? Okay, this is a clear description of God's Son, the second person of the Trinity, being born in human nature in David's hometown. Okay, so the, these words that are translated here as from of old and from ancient days also appear in Deuteronomy 33, verse 27. I'm going to read that to you. And what's interesting here is that in this verse... They get translated as eternal and everlasting. Both are, both are reasonable ways to, yeah, it's, so Deuteronomy says, the eternal God or the God of old is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting or ancient arms. And we can gather from this terminology applied to this king in this prophecy that causes an obvious tension, we can gather that this is not just some future king, but God himself. It's not just that this future king will come, but it's that this king has already been from forever. Matthew's gospel clarifies this for us. So as Matthew 2.6 cited with, with a little bit of paraphrase toward the end, Micah 5.2 about Jesus. And John 7.42 also refers to it. So Matthew clearly meant that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But we, we also see that this got quoted to Herod, and the reason for, for the reason why these 
uh, religious advisors quoted it, was that the wise men had seen the star and wanted to worship the Christ. Now, in other words, the wise men knew and the religious advisors understood that the Messiah born in Bethlehem would be God himself. There's no one else worthy of worship. They tied those things together. And so to sum this up, the king born in Bethlehem, who is Jesus Christ, also has eternal origins. He is the eternally begotten, as only God's Son can be in His relational origins in the Trinity. This this Son has been, if we can speak in terms of this passage, this Son has been coming forth from the Father eternally. But, but this divine person would be born in human nature in order to rescue his people. I, I, I get that, I, I am really aware that, that I sort of throw these theological bombs at you out of these texts. And I know that that's sort of dense and it comes at you, right? The point I want you to get by doing that is, I don't expect you to hang on to all the details, but I do want you to see that these things that Christians have treasured for millennia come right out of the grammar of our biblical texts. They're not, even even when they're sophisticated, they're simple in some ways. And so, that's if if you don't always... Hang on to all of it. That's the point I want you to see. Is that the Bible teaches about our triune God. All over the place. That's, yeah, a short little diversion there. So we've seen the Messiah's earthly origins. And his divine origins. And now we want to think about his timely origins in Micah 5.3. God will give Jerusalem over to exile until this Messiah is born. You see that the the woman in labor here is the nation of Israel from which the Messiah will be born. Micah referred to Zion this way in our last chapter as the woman in labor. And here, the labor comes forth in the birth of the one who will rescue her. The result of this messianic king's arrival, as in verses 3 to 4, is that he will collect his brothers and be their mighty shepherd. He will guard over them and bring them together, one people, from the ends of the earth. Now think about that. God's Israel is made up from people from all nations. That is what this Messiah will achieve. And that is why in verses 5 and 6, this Messiah himself will be their peace. Because he is making a remnant from all people who should be divided. He himself will be their peace and he will drive out their enemies. We must... Okay, so here's the thing about verses... 5 and 6. We have to remember that the prophets spoke 
in the categories of their day. For Micah's first hearers, the Assyrians were the immediate threat. Even, so here's the thing, even the most critical scholars admit that Micah's prophecy can come true without Israel conquering the Assyrians per se themselves, but that Micah spoke about the Messiah defeating all the enemies of God's people in terms of their present enemy. But the crucial point, here's the crucial point from this section, is that the Messiah, the Messiah, the Christ, is the divine figure who is born to rescue God's people. That brings us to our second point, the mission. So we we considered in verses 1 to 6, That the messianic king with eternal origin will be born in Bethlehem to rescue God's people. And now we're going to think about why God would send this divine figure to be the king of his people. We find that this consideration actually intensifies that previous point. That the Messiah came to rescue his people. I imagine most of you have seen some some sort of documentary... I hope now, as soon as that fell out of my mouth, I realize how nerdy that sounds. But, go with me. Hopefully you've seen some sort of documentary about ancient Egypt or Assyria or something like that. And these civilizations, the documents that they've left us, they regularly claim that their kings were gods. So they, they become these divine figures when they are crowned king of various empires. But it seems that they thought that these divine rulers are among us simply because superhumans can govern more effectively than normal humans. And so they get to be in charge. There doesn't seem to be much of a purpose for them in having a divine ruler. Now, it's practical for the emperor Right? Because it's probably harder to argue with him if you think he's a god. And additionally, it might bring some security, I suppose, to the people if you think your ruler is a deity of some sort. We, we can, they might think that we could expect success because gods have the strongest weapons and that sort of thing. And that's why in, in these legends, These kings have some sort of powerful supernatural army. But here's the thing. These observations about other cultures help us to ask some tough questions of ourselves. Why why do God's people need a divine king? Where do we place our trust, as we'll come to think about from our text in just a second. On, on what do we depend? Because I think, even as God's people, we have this drift where we turn to trust in worldly things. So if you look over, we won't read them all, but if you look over verses 10 to 15, We see a long list of things in which Israel trusted. 
Strong weapons like chariots and fortresses, magic spells from sorcerers, which in itself is noteworthy that God's people are trusting in sorcerers. And false gods, idols, carved with their own hands. And these things, for whatever reason, easily seem to lure Israel away from trusting God into trusting their own ability or the things that they had made. Now, I grant that it's unlikely that many of you are trusting in chariots or fortune tellers. I hope you're not. But the matter is a bit broader than that, isn't it? Is it we can think a bit more principled. We even we were questioned this morning in some ways. Do we not lean on our finances and success? Do we not tend to think that actually the things that will make everything all right are those things that the world will respect, like money and nicer homes and flashy job titles? Now, I mean, this is difficult because it's good to have jobs. It's good to have good jobs. And I mean, I personally would rather Christians who will use their money for good in the world make more rather than less of it. And Sarah, Sarah and I, to be frank, Sarah and I have often only made it because Christians have been generous to us. So I am fully in support of people having these things, but we have to remember that it is wicked to trust in them. It is wicked to trust in money. It is wicked to trust in prestige. It is wicked to trust in our academic qualifications. Those things do not buy security in this world because we can plan meticulously and if the Lord wills you and I would vanish from the face of this earth like vapor and so we have to see that that is a a significant part of the fact that the Messiah comes that he would rescue his people He does not come simply to be a God among us merely for His own sake as in the case of Egyptian deities. He comes because His people are lost in sin and cannot rescue ourselves. And we have to realize that. He comes because all of our striving with human instruments is vain. We were that retreating army needing not just a king to rally us, but to fight the battle for us. And we see, you see that, don't you? We, we live in a world that considers itself 
more enlightened than ever, and yet it is more divided and polarized than ever. And so no matter how much we store up for ourselves, whether it be materials or intellectual capital, the world can come crashing down on top of us. And we, as a church, I mean, here's where the rubber meets the road. We, as a church, should see that no matter how many human devices we implement to see people, even one to Christ, they will not work if the Spirit does not bless them. Don't we know so many stories, too many stories, of celebrity pastors with massive churches built by all the methods that make them totally relevant in the unbelieving world. And yet so many of these figures with immense outward success fall into heinous moral sin. I mean, there's a lot of obvious examples of sexual scandal, of significant pastoral abuse, of financial corruption, despite how many trendy and relevant approaches these ministers used. Reverend Pierce and I were even speaking this morning about how sermon preparation, we don't want to cast that aside. We spend significant amounts of time preparing for this, and yet... It's not a well-crafted sermon that will convince any of you to come to Christ. God must send His Spirit to bless everything we do. Worldly weapons do not win victory for God's people, but only the work of God Himself. And so, we circle back to our original questions. Where do you place your trust? Do you, do you think you could succeed, make it just fine, if, if you just had enough money? Do you, do you think the church needs to be trendier if God would use us to see people saved? Or do we trust in the Messiah who comes to give us victory? Do you believe it is good, as happens in this passage, that He would take away all of our worldly weapons and worldly strategies, even the figurative ones we try to use for spiritual gain, and it is in that way that He will claim victory over all the nations? Do you think it's good that He would do that, or does that frighten us? Because we need to see and believe deeply that the Messiah genuinely does come to rescue us. He comes to shape His people because we cannot do it ourselves. Jesus Christ comes to deliver His people from the curse of sin and the penalty of spiritual exile. He Himself is the Deliverer. The mission of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is that He comes to save by His own strength, 
rather than ours, so that He receives the credit for our deliverance. That brings us to our third point, the method. Okay, uh, so where are we? We've considered the Messiah in verses 1 to 6, and also thought about how the Messiah's mission to rescue His people, thought about His mission, and how His... And how that requires we trust in him rather than in worldly methods. Now, we do need to look at that method that Christ will bring about his global victory for creating a remnant. So, remember, cast your mind back again, if you will. Be patient with me to Micah 4 again. Where Micah then prophesied God's promise that the nations would flood to worship the true God through the Messiah as he is found in the church. And now we see the way in which Christ the Messiah will accomplish. So in the next section of this Micah 5, we see the way the Messiah will accomplish the mission of drawing people from all nations to his true temple, the church. Surprisingly, this passage shows us that he continues to bring about that victory, even now, through the people he delivered. So read with me verses 7 to 9. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant... Of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Okay, so we see here uh, what's going on is Micah described the remnant of God's people using Two metaphors, right? A refreshing dew that illustrates restoration and a powerful lion that illustrates domination. Now, here's the unsurprisingly, lots and lots of people have struggled to understand how the messianic remnant could be both refreshing dew and a dominating lion. They think that the refreshment of dew, God's people being that, is incompatible with being this dominating lion in victory. The Christians know how to reconcile this, right? We, we can get how to put this together. The, the dew is scattered among the nations just like the members of the universal church are scattered among the nations. The Christian church refreshes the nations because we proclaim the message that God's love is available in Jesus Christ. The lion, though, runs throughout the world in power. And there's significant description of that power 
here, that it goes through everything. But I don't think that this destruction here is a victory of judgment. Even if that's what the Israelites expected. The lion's power to overcome the enemies is not destructive. But his power is that same refreshing force as the dew. Gospel proclamation. The church does not attain victory by destroying her enemies because we are not interested in worldly geopolitical reign. We are interested in redeeming people, not replacing culture. We achieve victory by being the proclamatory people. And that goes through everything. The Word of God goes through everything and is refreshing. We are the powerful lion by being refreshing like the dew, as we explain the simple message of Jesus Christ living, dying, and rising to secure citizenship in His eternal kingdom for you. That is the method that Christ gave to achieve the victory in this passage. And so, we must be committed to the gospel. We are God's remnant, those whom God collects from every corner of the world and claims as His own, who understand that God's victory does not come through worldly weapons. We need to see that in the example of the Messianic King Himself in this passage, the eternal Son of God, how did He win victory? He humiliated Himself by assuming human nature so that He could keep the law perfectly that we were meant to keep so to earn heaven for us. He gave His life over to be crucified by the Romans and humiliating death, which in actuality secured His triumph over earthly powers and authorities. He rose from the grave to prove that He is victorious even over death. Yet this victorious king does not rule tyrannically for his own gain. You know, what does Micah say? We see that this reign is for sinners. The people who would be collected to this Messiah. And so I have to ask you, Are you collected to this Messiah? Have you come to Him to trust Him for grace? We see in Micah, and He shall stand and shepherd His flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord His God, and they shall dwell secure. For now He shall be great to the ends of the earth. Our king becomes a shepherd. Not a king exacting taxes for his own comfort, but the richest king who became poor 
and is now our shepherd so that he might feed us and lead us to green pastures. We know, right, that this is why Jesus Christ in John 10 refers to himself as the good shepherd. Because Christ is the shepherd king who came to save his sheep. He is the king Micah announced, and this is the Christ whom we worship and in whom we should trust. Let's pray. Father God, we have seen how you have spoken of the scope of history in these two chapters in Micah that we see again tonight in Micah 5, reason, application of the fact that future blessing instills present hope. And as we face a challenging world, it is good to know that Jesus Christ gives his people victory in surprising ways. We don't have to have worldly wisdom that is sure to triumph because we have the God of the universe who adds power to our feeble efforts. And we ask that tonight you would do that. Even even as mere tiny mortals have spoken of your word and have listened to your word, make your word powerful. That you would melt hearts and shatter unbelief. And that you would grow your people in godliness. That we would think little of worldly means of victory. And think everything of our deliverer. The one who comes to rescue. Who takes away our worldly weapons so that he can fight for us. Set our sights on that king. Who is our shepherd. Who is creating a remnant one people from all nations, even as you have done here. And we beg that you would do that even tonight. Add more people. You have promised the nations would flood to your temple. Add to your temple tonight. And send us out, ready to be servants, fueled with this message of the gospel, to be refreshing dew, and powerful lions, both based in the gospel, the refreshing, powerful message that Jesus Christ has defeated sin and death and offers that to us if we would trust in him. We pray these things in his name, for his sake. Amen.